Democracia e liberdade só existe quando as suas respectivas forças armadas assim o quer. You know I'm totally off script right now. I want to be nasty. Do you mind? Do you mind? We're going to have the wall. We're building the wall. We're building the wall, folks. We're building the wall. Através do voto, você não vai mudar nada nesse país. Nada, absolutamente nada. And the reality now is that we are the party of the people. Hello there, and welcome back to Season 2 of PALcast, a podcast by the Project on Autocratic Legalism, or PAL. I'm Fabio de Saia Silva at the University of Oklahoma. PAL is an academic endeavor where we seek to understand how law is used by rising autocrats to consolidate power or by those who are trying to resist those moves. You can learn more about the project at autocratic-legalism.net. My guest today is David Trubeck. David is Vos Bascom Professor of Law and Dean of International Studies Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a Senior Global Fellow at FGV Direito São Paulo, the FGV Law School in São Paulo. I struggled over how to give Dave a proper introduction on this podcast. For one, because he really needs no introduction to most of our listeners. For another, because I could spend an entire episode with listeners, just listing the positions he occupied, the publications that he authored or co-authored, and the accomplishments he had in his life as a scholar and academic administrator. I eventually thought I should mention three things about him, which are helpful to situate the context and the content of our conversation. First is his history and expertise on studies of how law can facilitate processes of economic change, which started in the 60s and gave rise to a whole academic movement called Law and Development. This movement had its controversies, which David and others took proper stock of. In, for example, a piece that he co-authored with Mark Galanter, entitled Scholars in Self-Strangement. But it also had the merit of putting developing countries on the radar of North American social legal scholars. Second is David's practice putting together large research projects with scholars from what we now call the Global North and the Global South to study changes in law and legal practice and their consequences around the world. These projects, which were always labeled with catchy acronyms like LANDS for Law and the New Developmental State, or Glee for globalization and lawyering in emerging economies, were a big source of inspiration to PAL. Indeed, and this is the third thing about David I needed to highlight, he has been a major contributor to PAL. He helped convene the first group of scholars in our project, he gave us mentorship and support, and he's helping to lead one of the project components, titled Transnational Efforts to Combat Authoritarianism, or, here goes an acronym again, TRICA. It is always fun to talk to David and to listen to him. The amount of experience, wisdom, and generosity that he conveys is just extraordinary. 
We are fortunate to have David as a collaborator in the PAL project, and I was very happy to host him on PALcast. You will listen to the interview after a brief word from our sponsors. My name is Scott Fritzen, Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma, which is a proud sponsor of this podcast and the institutional home of its host, Professor Desai Silva. CIS offers numerous majors and minors related to international and area studies, a flagship master's in international studies, a fully online master's in global affairs, and nine research centers, including the Center for Brazil Studies. Learn more about how we promote global fluency at ou.edu slash CIS. David Trubeck, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be part of this. I've followed it with great interest, and I think uh, uh, Pal is making a tremendous contribution, not just through the podcast, but through all of its activities. I want to start this conversation by recognizing your role in the Pal project. I talked a couple times here about the role of Kim Shapley, how her speech at the 2019 annual meeting of the Law and Society Association resonated with a group of young Global South scholars in the audience, and how they decided to respond to her call and engage in research about law and new forms of authoritarianism. But that story is not complete without mentioning the role that you played at the meeting, encouraging both those scholars to pursue this research agenda and the association to support them or us. And those who know about your career, they know that this is not the first time that you did what you did to us. You were also behind many important and successful initiatives in global social legal studies, like the Lens Project, which you led at Wisconsin, and which was about law and the economy uh, with a focus on Latin America, or the Glee Project uh, that you co-led at Harvard Law School, which was about changes in the legal profession in Brazil, India, and China. Why do you even put yourself into these complex and sometimes complicated ventures? Well, that's really two questions. Uh, So the first question is, why did I do it then? And and what was that all about? And why do I do it more generally? That's sort of this sort of organizational work. Um, So the answer to the question of what happened at, at, at 219 Washington meeting, I think is very important. So there was a remarkable turnout of people from Brazil at that meeting. I believe there were 120 people. I don't know that for sure, but I remember being very much impressed with the number. Uh, And so I saw a lot of uh, Brazilian colleagues uh, whom I've known for years there, and we were in touch uh, just in general. Kim's speech, which was based on her article, was uh, a blockbuster. It was. I, it brought. It made clear things that we'd sort of intuited and had a sort of incohate understanding. But all of a sudden, there was a framework. There was a set of. There was a vocabulary, and of course, it was obvious that it fit the condition in some of the. It fit to some degree the situation in Brazil. And of course, uh, other countries as well. But the focus at that moment was on Brazil. There were all these people there. Uh, we were interacting just in general, and it it became clear to me that we were 
we, the socio-legal community, was behind in this kind of work that the real world of authoritarian resurgence um, was well underway. And the, some of the social scientists had been aware of this for some time and there was a growing literature. And uh, we, uh, we hadn't really, uh, our community hadn't really uh, addressed it to the extent that it should have and, and, and needed to. And so that was really the reason why I encouraged everybody to get together uh, and, uh, and, and get started. And of course, the Brazil project was the first project. Uh, and, and we got started on the Brazil book then, and we will have a book actually both in Portuguese and English by the end of this year, uh, which is, if these things go, pretty fast. In the specific case of PAL, why a large project on law and democracy? Why do you think that this topic deserves to be studied by a global network of scholars? Well, of course, what we've learned, and, and it came, I don't know if she started it, there, there was other work, early work, but what we've realized is that the law is an important part of the story both as a tool used by uh, autocrats or would-be autocrats, um, and also as a place and source of resistance. So as we've understood this, we've also recognized that this isn't as well understood in the general literature as well as the sort of political understanding of, of how to combat authoritarianism, the, the role of law is, is not as well understood as it should be. Uh, we're lagging behind, I think, some of the other academic fields. And so it seemed to me that this was something that should be put at the very center of activity uh, in our field um, because of the global significance of the information that we could provide if we did more research and, and exchange ideas and shared understanding, and that this had to be a global enterprise. First place, because the phenomenon we're studying is global. Uh, secondly, because the individual countries that each of us are looking at or people are looking at uh, are themselves linked in global um, networks that are uh, very important to understand in order to figure out what's going on. Um, so you really have to uh, approach this uh, as, as a global phenomenon and you have to build institutions like the PAL project, which bring people together uh, uh, in order to understand the similarities and differences, and the choke points and the opportunities that the law offers to those who are trying to defend democracy, as well as those who are trying to undermine. Since your participation in the law and development movement in the 60s, you have been following the linkages between law and the economy. You recently wrote about new developmental states 
where governments were using law to promote growth and industrialization. You also wrote about international economic law institutions, trade and investment law, and how countries could seek an optimum combination between liberalization and the protection of the public interest or the national interest. How do you think that current processes of democratic backsliding relate to broader political economy contexts, including, for example, the success of new liberalism or the breakdown of new developmentalism? I think there are two very different questions here. The first question is, is there a causal relationship between the economic changes that have occurred and the rise of authoritarianism? There's certainly a correlation, as you suggest, but is there a causal link? I cannot decide on that. I, this is something for which I think, if there is research, I don't know about it. I don't think this has been as adequately studied. But there's another way to look at it, which is economic change for the worse is an opportunity for autocrats. Even if there's no necessary relationship between what the autocrats can do and the economic problems, when you see it, uh, the economy in trouble, then people are looking for solutions. It gives an autocrat a claim, particularly if the economic deterioration has occurred in a under a democratic regime. People who want to be autocrats and want to seize power can say, look, we have an answer. Uh, we know what to do. It uh, doesn't mean that they do know what to do, but it means that it gives them an argument. And looking at China, uh, which is a successful uh, example of autocratic economic development, uh, strengthens their case. So I think that the one thing we are, we are certain about is that when the economy deteriorates for one reason or another, it increases the opportunities for autocrats because it gives them an argument uh, that, uh, that strengthens their, their support base. Uh, and, and I think we need to study that. And we need to go further and, and try to understand the economic changes that may create this situation and why they've occurred and what could be done about that because Obviously, there needs to be a democratic solution to juxtapose to the autocratic solutions that are floating around. And there's no reason to think the autocrats actually can do a better job. It's just that they, they're in a position where they can convince people that they can do it, and that helps them get power. Let me touch on what became your piece in the pie of the PAL project a line of studies on transnational efforts to combat authoritarianism, or TRICA for the acronym. What is this project about? Where is the project at? And what will you be doing in the next few months? Well, uh, let's look at the world uh, as opposed to the scholarship first. Uh, it's extremely important that the democratic countries, the democratic regimes um, work together uh, to help each other and that we build international as well as national bulwarks against 
authoritarian resurgence, and we uh, strengthen the tools that we have uh, for outside support uh, for uh, democratic groups and also outside um, efforts to uh, sanction moves toward authoritarianism. It's just part of just part of the whole thing. And given my personal background in, in you know, in, in, in various forms of international activity, uh, it seemed to me like this was the best place for me to to find a role in the in the growing ecology of legal studies of, of authoritarianism or studies of the law and, and authoritarianism. And I hooked up with uh, Boyan Bogaric and Natasha Lindstedt, two scholars from Europe. Um, I've known Boyan for many years. We worked together in the past on law and development. And I knew that he was interested in this. And Natasha is an absolutely outstanding scholar of authoritarianism, having published several books that are highly regarded in the political science field. And so it was pretty clear that that this was a, a great combination of, of skills and abilities. Um, so we, we just, we've just really started, but here's the story. So Natasha had actually been working on sanctions uh, before this was how we met her, how we, we learned about her. She had done a lot of work on sanctions uh, already. And uh, of course uh, that material, her, her paper on that is on your website on the PAL website. Um, and when the Ukraine, uh, when Russia invaded the Ukraine, uh, the issue immediately arose, well, what kind of sanctions might be useful? What do we know about the sanction regime that, uh, that uh, would help people trying to cope with, with, uh, with this brand new situation? And we sat down, and talked for a few couple of hours and identified half a dozen, I guess it is, half a dozen ways that sanctions might be useful. <clears throat> and I wrote a very short, it's three single space pages uh, about this. And we posted it on SSRN. It's been downloaded actually 230 times in, in, in about a month, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it, which indicates that we actually are on to something, but also it, it's proof that the shorter, the better, <laughs> because I think one reason it's been downloaded so often is it's so short. Um, but anyway, so now we're, we're trying to figure out where we, where we go with this. Um, uh, and here we, here, this, this project, which we call TRICA, Transnational Efforts to Combat Authoritarianism. Basically, the first step was that short paper. Now we're doing a longer paper um, where we, uh, and we've decided that what this paper will do, we'll look at, it'll be a larger version of the uh, sanctions uh, short sanctions paper in the sense that it will look at some of the main issues right now in combating authoritarianism and ask which tools are available and can be used effectively or, or might be used effectively uh, 
um, uh, by various international and global institutions and actors uh, to uh, support democracy on the one hand or curb authoritarianism on the other. So we're now going to do a paper that outlines um, not just sanctions, it will include sanctions, but also um, legal actions, courts, uh, international tribunals, uh, unilateral sanctions from various countries. Um, uh, for example, we're, we will look at the current case in Venezuela and see what the sanctions regime has done and whether it might, given the new um, situation with, with Russia and the need to increase sources of oil for the West, whether something might come out about in Venezuela that would be a more hopeful outcome. The United States has reduced some of its sanctions and offered to discuss a new deal with Venezuela. Um, would that, is there a chance that that could lead to some kind of major development of a positive nature in Venezuela. So far, the Venezuelan sanction story has been pretty sad. It hasn't been sanctions. There have been lots of sanctions. There are huge numbers of sanctions. Everybody's sanctions at Venezuela. Now, the EU is in it, the US, the OAS, you name it. And it hasn't made much of a difference. Now, Maybe because the sanctions are biting more and because the economy is even in worse shape and because Russia, which has been helping Venezuela, uh, is not in a position to help as much, uh, maybe there would be an opening. And that's, that's one of the things that we're looking at in this paper. Uh, and of course, that will, that will go into an issue that we're very much concerned about is what is the American role here? What's American capacity? What is the capacity of the United States to play a role in these kinds of uh, efforts to prevent democratic backsliding and curb authoritarian resurgence? We, we, we think that that's uh, the Venezuela case, of course, with the US being the major, the lead actor, is going to be a test of that. Yeah, for the record, I already hosted Boyan here on the podcast. We had a great conversation about populism. I look forward to hosting Natasha as well. And I obviously look forward to reading and discussing this next paper, uh, which already looks a very promising contribution to our debate. But I wanted to get back to a question that we left lingering in the beginning of our conversation which is about your engagement with global social legal studies in general. What got you into projects like PAL, Trika, Lands, and Glee? Well, it, 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 I guess, you know, it comes from my great love of acronyms, right? So I love acronyms. And so if you, if you, you need to have projects in order to put the acronyms on, so but the acronyms come first. So Lands, no, but I'm joking. Seriously. Uh, I guess I'm just good at it. I, I, it's what I do. I don't know. I had all these years, don't forget, in these roles in, at the University of Wisconsin and also to some degree at Yale and Harvard. But 
really uh, uh, as 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 a promoter, as a sort of project developer. That's what I did uh, for the law first for the law school and then for the Center for World Affairs and the Global Economy, and then as Dean of International Studies. So those were my jobs, and I, I gravitated toward them because I enjoyed you know, working with people. As far as the Global South emphasis, well, that's been my entire career. I started, I started my, my career working as a lawyer uh, on foreign aid programs in Latin America, and that shaped my entire career. Uh, we didn't have the word Global South at the time, but uh, that shaped my, my entire career. That's a story that seems too fascinating for you to put into just a few sentences. Why don't you give more details about it to the audience? My academic career and the law and society movement really started about the same time. So uh, I, I uh, after law school and clerking for a year on the Second Circuit, uh, I um, decided to take a job working in AID, and my law school's professors were shocked because this is not what you were supposed to do if you were a recent graduate of the Yale Law School with, uh, with high grades and an editor of the, uh, with, of the Yale Law Journal and, and all of the rest of that, and I clerked on the Second Circuit for Judge Clark, uh, and Judge Clark was shocked. He, he expected I would go to work for Provast, Wayne and Moore, or one of those other firms. I actually got a couple of offers of that nature. And I said, no, I'm going to work for AID, doing legal work for the foreign aid program. So there I was engaged in legal work for the foreign aid program. And of course, most of what I did was help negotiate these major projects and major loans. Uh, so I did legal work. But it really was barely legal in the sense it was mostly policy work. It was mostly shaping the projects uh, and then creating some kind of legal framework. But the important work was really creating the, the, um, the project. But there I was in, in Brazil where the U.S. had a huge aid program. And, I, and so I was handling a vast portfolio of big loans. And the time was, I think it was $300 million, you know, which in today's dollars is a lot of money in the mid 60s. And I, I looked around and I said, you know, we're developing everything. We have an agricultural development, big agricultural development, we're developing the agriculture, we have an industrial development program, we have an educational development program, we're building up the educational system. And yatate, 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 but what about the legal system? This was, you know, this wasn't part of my job, but I said, you know, why shouldn't there be something to build up the legal system? So I went to my boss, the head of the mission, and he really wanted me around because I was, you know, I, I was an experienced person and I, I knew how to handle this, these huge loans. And he said, well, Trebek, he said, I, I don't think that's very important, but I want you to stay here for a couple more years 
So take a million dollars and see what you could do. That was the atmosphere that said, take a million dollars, you know, like some little jump change. We had a lot of, um, we had a lot of local currency from the sale of, of, of uh, uh, surplus agricultural products. That was a big part of the foreign aid program was the sale of American. Uh, and, and we sold those to, to the countries for local currency, which we then usually didn't do anything. But so we had a lot of, a lot of local currency floating around. Nobody knew what to do with. And that's how the CEPED project got started. So that's a project that we put together to reform, starting with the reform of legal education. And so there I was sort of engaged as a development officer, trying to figure out how to reform the Brazilian legal system to make it more effective at that point for economic growth. That was the focus, right? That's what I did. And then when I decided I had enough of working for the government and ended up in law teaching, I tried to make that a topic that I could you know, include in my teaching portfolio, which was not easy because of course, nobody knew what the hell it meant. What was law and development and what was the literature? There was no literature, there were no books. We had to, we had to put it together. We had to invent it. And so I took this personal experience as a development agent and tried to translate that into an academic field uh, to study the role of law in development. So that's how I'm, and then I realized that um, uh, this was really a law and society issue. Although I didn't, there's a small l, small s, because the Law and Society Association was just getting started at this time. I don't remember the exact year, but I remember attending the first annual meeting, which was in Minnesota. And that was, I don't know, in the 70s. But, um, you know, it was just getting started and people were just getting... So that it was, it, and it wasn't at that point. I mean, it wasn't. It was barely a field, and it certainly wasn't internationalized. But there were several of us who were involved in doing that, who had substantial experience with law in developing countries, and that was principally me and William Felsen, who had had similar jobs in India to the jobs that I had had in Brazil. So here we were now two academics um, interested in this new field of law, law and society and whose personal experiences and intellectual focus was very much shaped by our experiences, AID lawyers, and to some extent, AID lawyers who tried to do something about the legal systems in the countries that we were assigned to, uh, even though that was never part of our official portfolio. And so we gravitated toward the building of an international network uh, because we felt that that was important, not just for developing countries, but in general. And 
Bill and I really ran the first International Law and Society meeting, which was Amsterdam in 1991. Now I've just spent many happy hours going through the Lisbon program by clicking on, but that's not how we did it in 1991. In 1991, you sent in, you, you physically mailed your proposal for your paper to Bill. And then I went out to Bill's home in California and we put everything out on a table. We had all these little papers, right? Things like this, right? One, right? And we'd say, okay, now here's somebody who wants to work on the role of judges in, uh, uh, in um, uh, divorce. And then we look around and over here and we find one from somebody in you know, Italy who also wanted to do that. And then we would put them together and then we would, and then I don't know how we communicated. We did, did we have email? I'm not even sure. We had e email, I certainly didn't have much email if we had any in 91. So, so that was the first effort. And it, I stayed with that throughout the whole period of the Vaughan Society being involved to one degree or another in, in all the international meetings that were held with one exception when I had something else that I had to do that conflicted. And of course, I was the chair, co-chair of the Berlin meeting, which I believe was a real turning point um, uh, in, in the internationalization of law and society. I think that was when we really turned the corner and it really started to take off. That was in 2007, I believe, I think so. Um, so um, it's just been part of my DNA from the very beginning to be concerned about other countries and the way law develops in other countries uh, and the role of, of, of external actors in, in that because I was, that's what I was. I was an external actor trying to reform a legal system in a global South country. I mean, that's how I got started. And do you think we have made enough progress in structuring the field of global social legal studies since then? That's a ridiculous question. I mean, it's just amazing if you look at, just look at Lisbon. So, um, so I don't have the exact numbers for Lisbon, but I know the following. I know that 40 organizations from all over the world are co-sponsoring. I mean, this is just amazing. When, when we first started, Law and Society and the Research Committee on the Sociology of Law were the co-sponsors of the international meetings. The Research Committee was very European and not a very powerful organization. Um, so Law and Society sort of dominated those, those events. Um, and now we have 40 organizations, which probably includes the Research Committee. I don't know, I've never seen them, but it's still there. But 40 organizations, it's, right? There are over 4,500 people who have signed up, of whom 3,500 will be there live. And then there's another thousand who are only going to be virtual, which is itself significant. I think that the virtualization of 
law and society, and I'm going to say something about that in a minute, uh, is, is, is as important as anything else that's happened. And 60% of the uh, uh, participants in the Lisbon meeting are from outside the United States, which I believe is the first time that the uh, non-US participants outnumbered the Americans, even in these meetings, which were held in foreign countries. That I'm not 100% sure of, but I, I, I'm pretty sure. And certainly no, it was never 60% if it was over 50. So I think that, that the Lisbon meeting is itself a watershed in the globalization of the field and uh, something that we can build on. But I think that there's another thing that, that we have to think about. And I mean, this very thing that we're doing now, we're doing a podcast, which is going to be something that people all over the world, whenever they want to, can listen to uh, in their pajamas if they want. Um, that the, the Zoom world, the, what I'm gonna call the new Zoom world is, um, is changing everything. So look at Trika. We've never had a face-to-face -face meeting. Now I know Boyan, but I never met Natasha Lindstedt and I've never seen Natasha Lindstedt except on, on Zoom. I'm looking forward to face-to-face -face meetings. I think those are very important, but our project has made tremendous progress without ever having to have a face-to-face -face meeting. And I think that the important thing going forward for the Law and Society Association. And I've said this to you know, whoever is willing to listen to me babbling on, uh, is that this is the thing to be thinking about. Stop, you know, to stop thinking in terms of the annual meetings as the centerpiece of, 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 of collective action and just see them as just one of many tools. Uh, now, the, the, there's a whole issue of how you finance activities. There's all sorts of stuff that the Board of Trustees has got to think through. But I, I, I think we're moving into an era in which virtual connection will be much more important and much more central going forward. And more needs to be done to facilitate it, to make it easier, to you know, just, just to encourage as much as possible of this form of communication because you know it's just much more efficient. Before I let you go, and certainly inspired by this last exchange that we had, I wanted to ask, what are the two or three things that you would recommend for listeners to do in order to become good global social legal scholars? Well, of course, you know, there are two different things here, there, there, there's getting to know another country. Um, and I think that if, if at all possible, try to get to know some other country in some depth. Now that, in, you know, in many people involves language. I, I, was, I was very lucky. I had been a French minor in college, so I all, already had a, a sort of minimal capacity in French. And then the US government sent me to school for four months to learn Portuguese. Four months, full time, that's all I did. Uh, and so on top of this, the, 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 the French and, and a little Spanish, 
I got to the point after I got to Brazil and was able to get out of the office and talk to people a little more uh, where I was reasonably fluent. And so I was able to do a lot of this work. Um, and that's, that's an important thing. Um, so, you know, if you have a language that you can at least find useful. But if you don't, it, now in this day, of course, all is, you know, everyone speaks English so that you can actually know, learn something about a, a legal system of another country whose language you don't speak. It won't be anywhere near as, as useful, but it, it would at least be something. So learn about the law, something about the legal system of, a, of another country. Um, so the second thing is to get yourself into various into one or another network that is is specializing in some aspect. So we now have within law and society an incredible richness of network of sub networks, uh, IRCs and and CRNs. Uh, and so I would be troll if I were. If I were starting, or my advice to someone just starting is go through this and find uh, an internationally focused uh, CRN, IRC, and become part of it uh, and just get to know the folks there and get to know the literature. Um, because this, this is now the new primary form, I think, of interaction is the CRN, uh, the, the panels, you know, the, but, but the CRNs are standing bodies. They're not limited to this you know, annual schedule. That was David Trubeck. Thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you. It was a great pleasure. And um, I'm very much supporter of, your, of the PAL project and, and the podcasts. So uh, pleasure to be with you. If you like our series, share it with your friends on social media. They can access our episodes on the main podcast platforms or on our website. And if you have comments or suggestions regarding the series or our project, drop me a note at fabio.isaiasilva at ou.edu.